Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. Welcome to the summer break. One of the things we've prided ourselves on at Missed Apex is we keep on going even when there's no F1 action. And I think we have some great content for you over the next couple of weeks. These next two shows will be divided between some driver skills chat and some tech time. The tech shows are conversations between two of the best tech journos in F1 today. Our very own Matthew Summerfield, who writes for motorsport.com, will be in conversation with not just Matt Trumpets, but also... Craig Scarborough, you've heard of him, at Scarbs F1. So each of the next two shows, we will have a tech segment at the end, but we'll also start with some driving skills chat. Now, we've, we've done a few of these in the past, these driver masterclasses, and they've gone down really well. But for the new people who haven't seen them before, I regret we could not get hold of like an ex-F1 driver. However, I do trust this panel when it comes to driver skills. So I believe we've got three of the finest driver skill communicators in the world. Why not? I can have hyperbole. Why not? Of course, we have the fantastic Bradley Philpott, who is a Nordschleifer two-time world champion. He showed Sebastian Vettel a thing or two at the Race of Champions. He's a seasoned driver instructor from his days at Palmersport, and he is also uh, someone who has test-driven single-seater race cars. The other two guys you'll know very well. We've got Carl Power and Alex Van Jean. They're very experienced club carters and sim racers. They're incredibly fast guys. 
And I get that's not the same as being an ex-pro driver, but I tell you what, when I listen to these guys, I get faster. They, they know their stuff when it comes to turning a wheel. And it's kind of been a mission statement of ours at Missed Apex to say to Formula One fans, get out there and turn a wheel. Go to your local kart track and just join an open session. You might end up on track on your own. You might end up alongside a stag too. It doesn't matter. You will get an appreciation of the racing you see on telly if you turn a wheel yourself. Get the F1 game, not an ad, although I would accept sponsorship for that ad. Or get yourself a low-level sim rig. Just do anything to turn a wheel. Every muggy football fan out there is able to do a few keepy-ups, knows what it's like to kick a ball, knows what it's like to shoot a ball into a goal. If you're a racing fan, trust me, go out there and turn a wheel. I just need to remind you that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. First driving expert we have on the show today is Brad Philpott. How's it going, Brad? Oh, Spanners, it's going so well. Because first off, I've not been on the podcast in ages, so it's nice to be back. Mm -hmm. And secondly, I've been at Silverstone all day sliding a BMW M2 around a massive car park. You do have a reasonable job as a... Well, you've done a lot of freelance driving and instructing as well, but you're a full-time tyre tester now, and then you just recently got a gig where it was BMW. BMW need a skilled driver to go and make their car look brilliant around Silverstone while they do a bit of filming. Yeah, this was just a bit of a a one-off fun job. It's one of those where I actually wouldn't even mind if I didn't get paid because I basically just mucked about all day and uh, and made black lines all over the car park. You've got quite a resume. It's worth reminding our our listeners. As I said, you are a two-time uh, LNS, DLNS, what are they calling it? The Nordschleifer Championship, a two-time class champion. Yeah, I, I know it's easy to get confused with the names, but yeah, you're pretty much right there. Yeah. NLS, VLN, it's basically the, the endurance championship out of the Nürburgring. So that's probably the, the majority of my car racing has been out there uh, on the Nürburgring Nordschleife. But I've also been uh, club champion in the UK, British Formula 3 test driver, um, one-off round in the British touring cars last year. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, 12 years of race coaching. Yes. And, and despite the fact that, yes, you were in BTCC and all those credentials, the thing that appeals to me about you more than anything is your communication skills and you've you've helped me on many occasions so you've helped me with my sim racing we've been in radio contact um at buckmore park you in the stands and and i think you you found me a second around buckmore park in a go-kart which really upset people because you could just look at what i was doing and go in fact we made we forced them to change the track after you coaching me because you you gave me a big shortcut through one of the fastest turns on the track Yep, that's true. Yeah, you you started using the curb as you were supposed to, yeah. and then they put a tire barrier on there. So yeah, that's <laughs> mm. that's what we do, Spanners. We talk to people and make them faster. Yes, uh, you're an excellent uh, racing communicator, and that's why I love having you on Missed Apex. Now let's talk about your two friends. I guess my friends now as well. Two very different drivers that we've got joining us today. So we've got Alex Van Jean. How's it going, Alex? It's going really, really well, Spanners. It's nice to come and talk about not an actual race and talk about racing in general. So it's great. I hate racing you because your (laughs) driving style can best be described as, we can say it, sorry kids, balls to the wall. You are all or nothing. You are incredibly difficult to defend against and difficult to race against. And I hate you. Yeah, I, I, I... 
I, I started karting in my 20s. So when lots of people like Brad had been karting since they were a kid and had bad habits knocked out of them, um, I taught myself to kart and I was aggressive from the start and it's worked for me it doesn't work for others some people lose time doing it it just seems to work for me i've tried to smoothen it out as the years go on but you still need a little bit of raw aggression especially when it comes to overtaking and defending and, and the reason i'm i'm talking about these guys driver styles is because we can we hear those kind of things all the time oh this person is aggressive or like kyle power we hear this guy is smooth like jensen button kyle everyone says you are smooth like butter it's not intentional i guess it just comes naturally but i'm very happy to be on a bit like brad (laughs) i was very lucky last week i was also throwing around the bmw m2 competition round the track as well which is um which is all sorts of good fun along along with several other cars (laughs) yeah you did some single seaters as well some some downforce Mm -hmm. single seaters too yeah yeah, I've done it for a few years now. It's quite good. Currently sitting third on the Palm Sport leaderboard at the moment, which was a surprise, which is quite nice. But um, yeah, so I learned quite a lot and yeah, hopefully can convey some of that during the show. And I'm very flattered that when people have looked at my driving style, they've compared me to you, Kyle. They say, I'm, I'm like Kyle. I'm also smooth. I'm smooth and slow. That's the difference, <laughs> but smooth at least. Smooth is very good for endurance racing. It's not always the best thing. I, I do lose time in some in yeah. certain corners because I'm not so good at dealing with understeer because I am very, uh, how how could you put it, considerate with my wheel inputs. And you are yeah. very much the same. You're very smooth, very kind to the car. So a perfect in, perfect endurance driver, I'd say. And you're smooth and kind to other racers as well. So I consider you a, a proper gentleman on the racetrack. Your two colleagues here, Brad Philpott and Alex Van Jean, are gits. On Brad, that's I mean, you know, you know you're a git, you know you take every advantage. But given those two, Brad, if you had to, you know, pick your ideal race team out of those two, with the balls to the wall or the smoother silk, is there a difference? Is there a preference? We hear this in F1 all the time. Jensen Button is smooth. Kimi Raikkonen is aggressive and needs to wrestle the front in. Verstapp, uh, Vettel needs a stable rear end and is accelerating where other people are breaking. Do you have a preference over those two? So are you asking me who I'd like as a teammate in an endurance race or what kind of car? Okay, like? let's... Oh, that's a good point. Okay, so let's go... We're doing a single-seater downforce car. We're in an F2 or an F3. And okay, that, so I don't really care who my teammate is in that case because it's, it's about the job I do. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'd, I'd probably rather have a worse teammate so I look good. Um, <laughs> okay, a team boss so, then. So in that situation, I just want a car that is capable of, of going around the track the fastest and... And I'll just adapt to, to what it needs. But neutral, you want it to be as neutral as possible so that it it responds to your inputs in a linear way and ah. does what you tell it to. Ah, so you're talking about the car. But if we're a team boss, who do we want in our car? We're, F- oh, we're an see. F1 team. We're, we're starting. We'll convince Matthew Carter finally to to buy Sauber as the missed Apex F1 team. Who who You're obviously, right. you're our number one. You're getting all the upgrades first. But which one of those two are you having alongside you? It depends how fast they are. If you've got someone who's super smooth and they're also very fast, that's probably preferable to very fast and aggressive and is damaging the car or risking stuff. But if Alex, for example, was very aggressive, took some risks, but was a second quicker than Kyle, then I'd still take the faster driver. So there's some other factors at play. Okay, so all things being even, uh, you know, we really are just talking about the lap time and what works. Uh, but Van Jean, so I've been working on getting more aggressive into corners. You've said to me in the past, I just want to get 
my nose into the corner. So obviously, this will be different depending on different types of cars. But it, for you, it's the same, whether we're doing a sim race with a downforce car or a cart. For you, it's all about getting that front end in. Yeah, I hate understeer. Under, understeer is the devil as far as I'm concerned. So if I can get that nose to do what I want it to do, I can then deal with a bit of oversteer on the exit. I can deal with sort of balancing the car, car, cart, whatever I'm driving through the corner. As long as the nose does what I want, I can manage everything else. Okay, so as long as the so we're talking about rotation here, aren't we? We're talking about getting the car rotated into a corner, and as long as it does that. You will just you will manage a, a back end that's coming out. You will pin the throttle once you're pointing in the right direction, and you will just cope using the wheel to to make yourself survive the the rigors you're putting the car through. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's something I've actually had to learn um, more recently since doing. I know we uh, we talk about sim racing because no, it's that's part allowed. Of the skill of what that's we're doing. Allowed. Um, and something I've had to learn a lot more now than I've ever had to learn is trail braking. Because actually learning trail braking has helped me um, rotate the car more. So a little bit of a quick definition of trail braking is when you're turning and still braking at the same time, which just helps turn the car in. And the better you get at that, the better you get at getting the nose in. Now, I haven't been in a car in a really long time, um, and I'm hopefully planning on getting one in the next couple of weeks. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how I get on. Not that you do much trail braking in a car, but it'd be interesting how you are. Yeah, and going along um, with the balance theme, how I look at it when you're in a car or a cart or on the sim or anything, and Alex was talking about trail braking, it's about loading the correct end of the car for what you need it to do. So we talk about balance in the sense of driving, as in the driver needs a, a good balance. They're basically talking about where the weight is. If the car's like understeery, there, there isn't enough weight on the front. It's not biting in. If it's oversteering, there's like not enough on the rear. So basically, I think of it of like a seesaw. So when you're going yeah. to corner to try to deal with a understeer, you you want to come off the throttle because that's throwing all of the weight forward. You're making the front tires dig in, and the same with if you're struggling with the rear quite a lot, you don't want the weight off the rear. So sometimes when you're struggling with oversteer, it sounds crazy. But keeping a tiny bit of throttle on sometimes mid-corner can actually almost help when you're having oversteer. They call it lift-off oversteer because all the weight's on the front. Yeah. You take the weight off the rear and it goes around. So balancing and driving a car, whether it's a cart or a car or on the sim, it's all exactly the same principle. And it's getting the weight where you want it. See, uh, Brad, we've talked about this a lot on the iRacing podcast. And it's it's kind of like a hidden skill in Formula One of what the drivers are doing, which is managing the weight throughout the corner. So. I you gave me a really good exercise for for doing well on braking and sim racing, which is getting to the bite point as quickly as possible. The point at which it is going to bite the wheels more than the traction on the road, and it is going to essentially lock the brakes and skid. So you want to get all the way up to that, but not quite, because that's like the maximum braking you can do. Once you lock, you start skidding, you lose kind of braking force. That that's great for like a big stop on a hairpin. And, you know, just just getting it stopped as quickly as possible. That's something I think probably all kids would need to learn. And, and there's the famous stories of Lewis Hamilton learning to brake as late as possible at Rye House. The more subtle thing that Brad, uh, that Carl's talking about is maybe something like at the end of the Kemmel Strait uh, in Spa-Francorchamps, when, you, when you've got a 90-degree right-hand turn, or at Cota, the left-hand turn before the back straight, where you are having to, to manage the weight. And this is the skill that has taken me the longest in the sim, which is that by breaking less for longer, you can 
manipulate the weight of the car and start rotating it very gradually on the approach to the corner. And and I think as casual F1 fans, if you don't have any insight into turning a wheel yourself, they're the kind of skills that kind of get masked and lost and can make the difference between the, the great and the good. Yeah, it's it's tricky to it's tricky to talk about this this subject without giving specific examples of yeah. a particular car, a particular corner, and a particular situation. Because ultimately, in the in the last ten minutes or so, we've discussed very very different ways of of driving. Because it all depends how you're supposed to drive, how to get the most out of the car depends on what is actually required in that moment. So you mentioned some corners that require some fine balance, managing the weight of the, uh, you know, where, where you're allowing the weight to move, whether you're braking gently, um, braking really hard in a different situation. And all of those things are appropriate at specific times. Yeah. Um, so, so can I, give yeah. a, can I, can I help you with a specific example then? Because there's loads of these in F1. If you look at uh, the street circuits, say Singapore, where you have a reasonably heavy braking zone, into a slow 90-degree turn leading onto a back straight. My instinct as a muggy billy, I believe you call us, it's a hate word, us less experienced drivers, the instinct would be to brake as hard as you can, get really slowed down for the corner, and then accelerate. So kind of point and squirt, as they call it. Whereas actually sometimes to get the car rotated, you know, you want to be much more gradual on the brakes, and this is the weight transfer car I was talking about. Yeah, so I don't know the specific corner you're talking about. The moment you said Singapore, I, oh, I, my heart off. sank because <laughs> I, I, I know some of the track, but not most of it. It's all of them. Um, all of the corners are the same. But essentially, as a driver, you need to be trying to go as fast as possible for as long as possible and only slowing down to the, the, the highest speed that you can get away with to get the job done. Obviously, bearing in mind, there might be some extra compromise, maybe if you've got a a long straight following the corner you're in, maybe you you could slow down more than you could get away with in order to get a better exit. But anyway, in a normal example, your general dr- job as a driver is to maintain the highest minimum speed and never go slower than you could be going. So the way you achieve that just depends on on the corner and what the car allows you to get away with. Yeah. So so braking really really hard like you're like you're talking about. And getting the car stopped and rotated is great at some corners, but if you try and do that at, say, Brooklands at Silverstone, you're just going way slower than you yeah. need to be going. Because in that particular corner, you do need to scrub off some speed, but you only need to scrub it off gradually, yeah. which means you can be going faster for longer, and you only arrive at your minimum speed right at the last moment. So you're not getting it stopped dead, rotated, and driving off the corner, but that's because of the shape of the corner. Yeah. and. To add in on that, it's about again keeping keeping the weight. So when you're braking really hard and doing what what they call a point and squirt, you're basically making a V of the corner. So you're oh, okay. getting it. No, Carl, 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 stop you there. Right, V. We've heard this phrase a lot. So uh, Vettel, I think, said Mark Webber likes to V a corner, whereas he would like to carry the speed. Can can we have a primer on that? Okay, so. Um, Basically, being the corner is if you're looking top down, like a topography view of the track, your racing line is not a nice smooth arc sweeping in, catching the apex and arcing out. You're essentially breaking deep in a straight line whilst almost already turning into the corner. You're basically aiming for the apex, you know, exaggerated. If you think of it, they're just aiming for the apex, get all of your braking done, still deep into the corner, come off the brakes, rotate the car and turn it quickly. 
and then essentially fire it out when it's pointing straight again, your racing line would look like a V or one of Spock's eyebrows. So if anyone wants a really good example of this, if you watch Kyle Power's onboard video in the Formula 3000 at Bedford Autodrome, um, you'll see at turn eight, it's uh, a corner which lends itself to this. Um, he'll basically go in and effectively apex twice. It's it's one corner of of a constant radius, but he'll go in, kiss the first part of the inside of the corner, run a little bit wide in the middle, and then get his minimum speed. That's where the car gets rotated whilst he's going at his slowest. He'll then accelerate off the corner and not have to hold a kind of constant throttle all the way around the inside. He'll make another apex on his way out of the corner, but it's in an almost straight line. And it's, it's, as he described, in a V shape. So rather than having one long apex where you have to keep a kind of constant speed, you'll go in fast, get it stopped away from the center point of the corner, rotated all in one go, and then drive off the corner as straight as possible. Okay, so that's what people mean when they say Ving a corner. The other phrase, I believe, is carrying speed into the corner. Is, is that the alternative? How does that differ from what you just described? So the essentially, yes, you're carrying speed because you're not getting down to quite as low a minimum speed. So with the V, you can imagine the shape of a V has a sharper point, yep. which means that you're going faster until you're suddenly really going slow and then you get a nice straight exit carrying the speed is more where you take a smoother line in and you are going at a slightly higher speed as a minimum but as an average it probably works out somewhere roughly similar okay and so does this come down carl to just 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 driver preference or is one better than the other what are we talking about very much corner type okay so and what's more importantly, what's after that particular corner. So say like the um, in our recent uh, Mist Apex iRacing Championship, we were at Cota, the Circuit of the Americas, yes. and I can't remember the corner number, but the hairpin onto the long straight, you wouldn't see anybody taking a nice arcing high apex speed line through there because the apex is largely irrelevant. You have a big, long kilometer long straight afterwards. So <laughs> you want to do what Brad was describing, go in deep very deep V the corner, get your braking done, get the car rotated and get on the throttle earlier. So you sacrifice the time in that corner. You probably throw away two to three temps uh. on the apex because you're not carrying the speed, but you'll probably gain five to eight temps by the end of the straight. I uh, see, Alex. So this is, I think I, I, I've solved a mystery. I've unlocked a mystery. So when they say, oh, one driver is better at Ving uh, and one driver tends to carry the speed, they're not really saying oh, this is a different way they approach a corner. It's just saying, oh, Mark Webber will be better at this kind of corner and, and Vettel will be different, better at this kind of corner. Yeah, I mean, they always said that Mark Webber was better in the fast corners and Seb was better in the slow corners because he spent less time in the slow corners. That's what gave him his extra speed over Mark. But the thing to... Um, pay attention to when you look at a racetrack and you're thinking about where you can gain time and how you want to look at it is you look at the corners that are most important so if you've got a section of three corners coming up it's about which corner is the most important and generally the most important corner is the one that ends up onto a straight because it's about maximizing your speed onto that straight and therefore your speed down by the time you get to the next breaking point so if you've got a really fast sweeper in that section of three corners for example and generally in a fast sweeper you want to go from the outside to the inside to the outside again but 
you actually need to prioritize the following corner, which is slower, you will compromise your entry into that corner, your exit or your entry into that corner to maximize the following corner that leads you onto the long straight. Now, this was one of my first lessons in racecraft from from Alex, actually. I think it was, oh, it will name drop here. It was Alex, it was you and I and, and Will Buxton and others at Ellsbury. I can't remember the name of the track. Yeah. We can give them the Rogue Racing. Rogue Racing, there we go. And you were watching me taking a line into the final exit, which was essentially three hairpins. And into the first hairpin, I was taking a really wide line so I could go super fast into the, the entry of the first hairpin and then have to brake really slowly. And you're like, stop stop wasting your time there. Just, just take the quickest line to the apex of that first hairpin and then really it's only the last one that matters. Yeah, that was, that was kind of the first lesson I started learning when I started karting and I was trying to get quicker. And it, all I thought about was taking every corner as fast as I yeah. possibly could. But you, wasting time is actually the perfect description because you would be. If you flow into fly into a corner, you don't need to go into that deep or that fast or that wide because it's compromising the more important corner coming up. And it doesn't matter. So Alex has is, is really touched upon here the key to to driving any lap fast, which is is choosing the right compromise. Because as a general rule, we talk about the racing line is about minimizing the angle of the corner to maximize your apex speed. So you always go all the way from the outside, all the way to the inside, yeah. all the way to the outside. But that only applies as a very, very general rule. And as Alex has just been explaining, what's really important once you start getting kind of more advanced in your driving is finding the correct compromise because there's obviously, as you've been saying, no point in getting a really fast apex, really fast entry if the following straight is extremely short. All you've done is drive further than you need to yeah. and, and waste time. So it's all about compromising correctly, Ving the corner or carrying the speed, as you were just talking about, is one of those situations. And choosing the right weapon in your driving armory to, to deal with a particular corner is it's just one of the things that you get better at as you become a more accomplished driver and you'll have experienced a particular kind of corner many times and you can then start to apply that to a new track if, it, if you're driving it for the first time and work out the compromises more quickly. Absolutely. Um, and also the different techniques you use and apply obviously apply to the different principles, whether you're V in the corner. So going back to Brad's original example of going into Brooklands at Silverstone, it's a fantastic corner for this. So this is a corner you would never, ever want to V. You don't want to break hard into there. And again, yeah. it goes back to the balance and the balance seesaw. You want to keep the weight on the front and keep the front loaded. So breaking less and longer and trail breaking in, mm. keeping that front loaded. As soon as you get off the brakes, you'll go to a neutral balance, which is going to take weight off the front and then induce some understeer. So that's the perfect corner for this example. And, and see, Brad, there's so many times down the Wellington Strait into Brooklands and around to Luffield where... You see this. So, for example, like Lewis Hamilton round the outside of Max Verstappen just at Silverstone, just gone. It looked like he he kind of had him. He he braked harder to kind of get ahead. Uh, but Verstappen is is maybe just a little bit lighter on the brakes, really managing his position through that. And it's not done. So understanding these things can help us understand the battles that we see in F1. Yeah. So So the example you've just used there, is a racing example. Yeah. So neither of those drivers was on the correct racing sure. line that you'd be doing if you were on your own on track or going for a fast lap. So they were both compromising the corner 
to to meet their own goals. Max was trying to defend. Lewis was trying to initially attack and then trying to gain an advantage for himself on the exit. So so you will maybe employ a technique that you wouldn't ordinarily do if you were driving on your own yeah. through there. Um, something to really bear in mind is that if you were to draw a picture of a corner and ask someone what the correct racing line was, you can't answer that question without knowing what comes next. And Brooklyn's mm. is a fantastic example because, as Carl just said, you would never V that corner. But if you drew a picture of Silverstone where the, the straight after Brooklyn's wasn't feeding immediately into, into Luffield, yeah. but it actually was a massive long straight heading off towards um, Banbury, then, <laughs> then you would definitely V that corner, the exact same shape of corner. You would drive it by going in deep and then cutting back and getting a great exit. But no one ever does that because there's a super short straight after it and and it would be much, much slower to do it. But Lewis did a kind of V like that in order to get a better yeah. exit on a disadvantaged Verstappen because Verstappen was pressed up against the inside. So there was an opportunity to to try and get alongside him on the exit. That is a super nuanced understanding of the geographical compass points around Northamptonshire there that you could you knew that that would be pointing towards Banbury. No one check or just assume I, that's correct. I think it's actually Bicester, but maybe somewhere between Banbury and Bicester. <laughs> it's pronounced by Chester, but okay. But whatever, we don't need to argue about pronunciation here. Kyle, have I surprised you? Sorry. I was just laughing at your... All right, Bicester, Bicester, Bicester joke. There's going to be some upset people. Yes, I know. Toaster, Towcester, etc., etc. We, we've done a lot here on kind of basic driver skills and terminology, which I'm glad we explored. The original plan here was to talk about uh, suboptimal conditions that drivers might face. So things like wind direction. How does that affect you? Tire degradation, temperature change, having a poor car compared to your rival. What if you're off track? What if you lose confidence? What if you've got damage? What if you're losing aero for damage or following a car? And I think what we'll do is we'll do that uh, in the second part. So next week, we'll kick off and we'll start off by doing that. Spoiler, look, a peek behind the curtain. It's it's all the same recording session. So we're just going to click stop. And then we'll, we'll start again. But before we go to tech, I just want to talk about balance quickly. At the Hungarian Grand Prix, during the practice sessions, Max Verstappen was complaining about having understeer and oversteer. So uh, Alex said that oversteer is the devil. I, I think that was hyperbole. I'm sure you said that. You said understeer is the devil. Understeer is the devil. Understeer is horrible. No no racing driver in their right mind (laughs) likes understeer. But actually, Kyle, I know, and and myself as well, when people are complaining about understeer, we tend to just gain a few tenths on people because we don't mind being a bit patient on entry. There's a difference about liking understeer and being better at managing understeer. Uh, Um, And I think that's where yourself and Kyle do quite well, is when you have got an issue where lots of other people are struggling with understeer, you manage to cope with it better than others. So when I'm arranging a game of golf, and by the way, I'm playing summers at golf on the Isle of Wight. I've been practicing today. I I am already miserable. So I want to bring other people down to my level of misery. So I will try and book a rainy day, if at all possible. I will book it at seven in the morning, the first available tea time, when the sun is just rising in in your eyes. And when they go, oh, I'm cold and wet, the sun's in my eyes and I'm tired. I'm like, yeah, welcome to my world. Let's tee off. 
So, Kyle, is that the case? Are we just benefiting from other people's misery when it's understeery conditions or setups? Ish. Like, different conditions will always suit different driving styles. So, generally, when it's hotter, when you hear them moaning about it's so hot in Formula One, that generally tends to lend to more oversteery conditions because they're working the tyres very hard and also track, but the power goes through the rear tyres. So, they tend to eat the rear tyres more. Um blustery winds can can really throw drivers off but if you're talking about an understeer versus oversteer preference then yeah of course different driving styles will be better at managing it um but it it's it does come down to the minutiae and how you come off the throttle how how you use that balance seesaw to your advantage we can be very gentle on the steering inputs but we might not be very good on the throttle control we we might just hold that horrible neutral throttle, which encourages more understeer. Somebody else with exactly the same steering technique might be blipping the throttle to try and throw the rate around a little bit. And that is actually going to get rid of the understeer. So I guess you and I, we can deal with the understeer okay. Also, also Carl, we're, we're old. So we've just got a bit of patience. <laughs> we're like, oh, we've got a bit of patience. We don't mind going a bit slower through the first yeah. bit. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. And then if you're a bit too enthusiastic, you can get on the throttle too early, induce more more understeer. So maybe us being old and also blipping the throttle, maybe being a bit jittery with our yeah. feet and not very fine with our controls might actually help in these situations. See, we're not young, dumb and f- full of oversteer, Brad. Ultimately, dealing with understeer and oversteer is just an algorithm in your driving brain. And it, and whether or not you're better at coping with one or the other is is just about how good your, yeah. your mental driving algorithm is. So... Yeah when you get understeer, when you experience understeer, first of all, you have to recognize what's happening. You have to realize that the vehicle isn't responding to your steering input in the way that you've requested. So a certain amount of steering input isn't eliciting um, the amount of rotation that you're expecting. It's not not got a linear relationship. Um, And so that's the first skill that's involved here is recognizing that early enough and knowing what's happening. The next part is then choosing what to do next. And I say choosing, it's not a choice because this will be subconscious for anyone who's who's good, but actually making the correct response as fast as possible. So depending on the situation, that could be lifting off the throttle mm. or maybe braking or wh- whatever the situation requires, maybe reducing some steering input. But yeah, I was going to say that's being- the most in- interesting one because a lot of the time what people do when they're understeering at nearly every form of racing is crank on more steering. And that actually is, it makes it worse because you're now asking even more steering for the pace you have, which gives you even less control. Yeah, um, we've mentioned this loads of times, but for the new people among us, understeer could be described as when you're going too fast for the amount of steering lock you've asked for. And by asking for more steering lock, you're now just definitely going too fast for the amount of steering that you've asked for. But it is everyone's natural reaction because... In an untrained driver brain or a less well-trained driver brain, you think the car isn't turning enough, therefore I need to turn more. And that's just the incorrect response. So all of these things, obviously a Formula One driver won't be doing that. That that just isn't, that, that's programmed out yeah. of them when they're eight years old in, in a cart. But how well and how quickly drivers recognize subconsciously and respond subconsciously to these handling deficiencies is what separates the really good people from the good people. And someone who can cope 
with understeer better than someone who struggles with coping with understeer like if we were to make a distinction between you guys and alex for example sure that's just down to how well your your subconscious driving brain is accessing the correct response or, or realizing what's happening and then accessing the correct response as quickly as possible to fix the problem because that's all that's happening is your there's a problem and you have to fix it and then you can carry on with the driving Excellent, guys. This has been like a fantastic primer on a driving masterclass. We've done so much of this on, a, on our iRacing podcast. So a search for Missed Apex iRacing on your podcatcher of choice. And, and actually, we fundamentally on there address driving skill because we're not covering like the sim racing series that are going on. We're trying to make ourselves better at iRacing. And I know not everybody puts the same value on sim racing as we do. But you know what? I can't afford a F3 car. So taking part in the iRacing F3 Championship, for me, gives me, I would say, exactly the same adrenaline buzz, skill challenge, and sporting challenge that I get from the Missed Apex karting events. All still very low level, but like we've said at the start of the show, we do encourage everybody to just get involved. Go and turn a wheel at your, your local kart track. Play a computer game on a joypad or get a low-level sim rig off of eBay and just give it a go. By the way, those things hold their value. If you buy a sim rig today, decide you don't like it, and then go and sell it on eBay, you're probably going to get most of your money back. And with that, go and have a go, because these skills that you do learn in sim racing, they are transferable when you get thrown into, or you do get an opportunity to have this sort of go in real life, like I did manage to do last week, and I've done a few times. Like... most definitely these skills we've been talking about, but dealing with understeer, blipping the throttle, the weight, the weight, um, the weight balance. Absolutely. Um, from what I do in iRacing and what I've learned in iRacing, that's absolutely transferable. I was using those skills. The main differentiator when you get into real life is just basically bravery because you've got the G-force <laughs> and everything else. Yes. You, but the actual core skills you use are pretty much identical. Yeah, it's like, thanks to the pandemic, I haven't really been in a car in about 18 months. But because I've done a lot of sim racing, I don't feel rusty. So when I hopefully go and do my kart session week after next, I feel like I'm quite well prepared for it. And I'm not like thinking I don't know how to do it anymore. Um, apart from the um, the ballast that doesn't exist in sim racing will very much exist. <laughs> the kebab uh, ballast. I jump back in a go-kart. But I'm trying to manage that at the moment. Um, so yeah, so... It definitely does get you somewhere. I mean, some other people have said on Twitter in the last few days that um, the real racing is the only way to do it, but I think um, the majority of the community disagree. Yes, I think that Twitter account was soundly uh, hmm, not everyone's best friend. We know sim racing doesn't have the, the same peril as, uh, as real-life racing, and I have to admit, as brave as I am in a sim racing car, when I go around Buckmore Park or Daytona Milton Keynes, I am terrified by some of those corners, when you're approaching a corner in a go-kart at 60 miles an hour, flat out, and deciding whether to to brake or, or whether to pin it and whether to dive down the inside of Van Gene at Turn 10 at Milton Keynes Daytona, I I do have a little bit of a moment, Van Gene. I'm not afraid to say it. Downhill at Buckmore Park, through those S's, I do definitely question my mortality and whether I want to do it or not. Well, it's like when you mentioned at the top of the show about... Um... Brad found you a second. I bet yeah. a lot of that was about yes. breaking later, getting on the power earlier, which the breaking later and getting on the power earlier thing is all a fear thing. Yeah. If you can get over the fact that the wheels aren't going to fall off, 
You're not going to go hurtling into a corner and fly up into the air in a fireball. And that you're generally going to be all right getting on the throttle as early as yeah. possible, breaking at the latest possible minute is going to bring you that second, especially across a big track like Butmore Park. Two things. I've been cutting with Kyle where I, I, the wheel literally fell off and I had three wheels <laughs> going off into the distance. Um, and also, actually, the way that Brad found me most of the time was track position. Interestingly, it wasn't the braking or the accelerating. It was track position. Why the hell are you there when you could be there? So we've we've covered the, the great things about driving and the ways to be good. When we speak to you next and next Sunday, we'll be talking about the challenging conditions around driving a car and how that might relate to our appreciation of watching our F1 heroes on track. But now I am absolutely delighted to bring you the first part of a two-parter again. We're going to be talking tech. We're going to be talking 2022 regulations and just a bunch of other magical tech things that I have absolutely no knowledge or instinct about. So that's why I'm going to hand over to Matt Trumpet as he is in conversation with Summers F1 and Craig Scarborough. We're pretty lucky. Enjoy this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And once again, we're fortunate enough to be joined by the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, a.k.a. Summers F1, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, who has deigned to sit down and share some wisdom with us. It's good to see you again. Thanks for taking the time. No problem. Good to see you again, Matt. Yes. Well, you'll pardon me if my introduction is short, because we're also joined by the incredible tech legend Craig Scarborough, a.k.a. Scarbs, who has somehow found the time in between taking things apart on his bench and doing the odd F1 TV presenting gig to join our humble show. Welcome back, because this is not your first time. And wow. thanks for dropping in. Just a small nice. warning. My first question is likely to be 57 minutes long. 
No, no problem. Yeah, it's great, great to be back. It seems like a, a very long time and uh, looking forward to it. Thank you. No problem. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you and Summers know each other outside of this very setting, do you not? Yeah, I mean, I think I've known Matt for, oh, I, I, I wouldn't want to put a, a date on it. It's been a very long time through social and the forums and what have you. And um, I, I think I'd have given you the nod, didn't I, Matt, for the uh, the motorsport gig? <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much, yes. <laughs> I cannot wait to get this started. But before we start talking about the 2022 regulations, I do want to take a minute to ask you about your favorite tech thing from this season. And I'll start because I only know one thing, and that would be the McLaren diffuser strikes, which are longer than the regulations meant for them to be. And I love it because it sort of perfectly dances on the edge of the rules, or I guess across the rules, if you look at it that way. So they get a toy they wanted, and no one else was clever enough to think about it. Scarbs, what about you? What is your favorite thing this season? This year has been fairly fairly quiet for um, interesting bits and pieces. I suppose, the, I suppose the only main thing is that everyone's coped with the floor change rules. And everyone thought cutting a bit of the floor away was a, a big loss. But actually, teams cut away even more of the floor to create this stepped or Z-edge to the floor. Um, uh, something that um, I yeah, perhaps wasn't expecting. Uh, I've predicted it a couple of times on the front wing, but no one's really kind of quite gone there. So um, that's probably the only really interesting thing that's kind of cropped up this year. What about you, Summers? I'd probably go with flexi wings because of obviously everything that went on surrounding that and not the whole political landscape of it. But yeah, as Craig says, there's not been too much in terms of um, technical innovation, let's say. It's just responding to what the FIA have done to to obviously cut the, the teams back. All right, fair enough. I will throw in the Honda power unit revamp as just being an amazing thing in general, being done in such short period of time. So as we kick this thing off, I just got to reiterate, I'm super excited to fill the void of my ignorance with your facts and details. That said, it's time to take a journey through next season's car. Gentlemen, as I understand it, the job of the FIA is to regulate when and where the designers, arrow and otherwise, can noodle, whereas it is the job of those same designers to break those same regulations as thoroughly as possible, enabling them to noodle outside the area the FIA would like to keep them in and in general, subvert the aims of the FIA as much as possible while chasing performance, kind of like the McLaren Diffuser that we just mentioned. It's never been a fair fight because the teams have resources far beyond those of the FIA. And with that in mind, I'm now going to ask you to take a journey with me through these regulations and explain to our listeners what the FIA are trying to do, how the cars will change as a result, and how the teams will try and absolutely defeat every last one of those changes. Um, let's start with an easy one, length and width. Are we finally going to get the short wheelbase and super lightweight cars everyone demands that we need? Uh, sadly, uh, no, we're not. The width of the cars remains exactly the same as they are. And uh, wheelbase, uh, for the first time that I can ever remember, is actually in the regulations and is uh, restricted to a maximum of 3.6 meters. Uh, 3.6 meters, I mean, that's enormous, isn't it? Um, so that makes it slightly shorter than some of the current cars. But not by much. I mean, it won't, they won't look visibly shorter because of the wheelbase change. It'll be more because of the different shape of the rear wing and the front wings that will make it look slightly different in in um, in layout. But really, uh, in terms of uh, length and width, no, they're going to be pretty much as they are now. I see. Uh, Summers, is there which teams are going to be actually having to make their cars shorter? Well, there'll be a few of them, won't there? I think the the, the thing to remember as well, though, here is that um, the weight is is going up slightly again. 
um one of the the main thing that people complain about is that is the increase in weight uh, but most of what we get in terms of the dimensional restrictions of the cars is down to safety structures and obviously that's incredibly important so you're never going to see that the cars shrink dramatically to the sort of length of what we had in 2009 for argument's sake or, or just a bit before that um and that is purely because of the the physical constraints of a lot of the components that the car is made up of. Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly agree with that, Matt, on, in terms of the overhangs. But I think in terms of wheelbase, there's huge scope to shorter these cars if the teams wish to. And if the FA wish to put the regulations, they could have put it in at 3.2, 3.3 metres quite easily without the teams having to dramatically re-engineer things Um which I, I think is an opportunity lost. But, you know, again, the, the, the topic is forever kind of rotating around. So maybe at some point in the future, they will <laughs> finally make these cars down to the sort of size that we would all expect them to be. Uh, just a quick question. If they were to go that much shorter, would that really have any significant effect on the weight of the car at all? Or is that down to components that aren't going to be changed? I mean, I think, I think some of the weight will come down. Um, but you're only talking about cutting probably, you know, a section of the gearbox away and or the gearbox case, which is you know, carbon fiber honeycomb at the end of the day. So that's not going to save you a massive amount of weight. Um, so, yeah, that's that's not really going to make a huge amount of difference other than just, you know, shortening the cars. Is that something we should feel bad about? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I think a lower weight would be better. But, um, you know, the teams are struggling to get down to this weight at the moment with the power unit, with the safety structures. So yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of it is where it is. Um, and maybe only the 2025 regulations would um, make a big change in terms of the weight of the power unit. But still, I think the overall weight of the power unit is only 140 kilos, uh, whereas it used to be 100 for the old V8. So, you know, they're not massively overweight compared to where we were. Uh, would, for example, say a battery breakthrough help the weight thing? And I couldn't help but notice when I was looking through the regulations that a lot of very lightweight and structurally strong materials are absolutely seem to be outlawed for use in the power unit and in the car. Sorry, Matt, do you want to take that one? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, uh, the, the the batteries are already at a certain weight anyway. Like Craig said, I don't think there's a huge amount of scope in terms of being able to lower the weight dramatically. As we've seen over the last few years, in fact, they've actually started to increase it just you know, by, by a few kilograms each season to accommodate the fact that uh, things are a little bit tight in terms of that respect. Uh, and you go back to 2013 when we last had the V8, as Craig's just mentioned, 2025. Uh, back in t- uh, 2013, the car weight was 640 kilograms. But obviously, there's a lot of things gone on between now and then. Um, and as Craig says, I think 2025 will probably be the, the line in the sand where a lot of that side of things are, is predominantly dealt with. All right, well, shall we journey to where the rubber meets the road or actually where the external air first meets the car, uh, the front wing and the nose? Now, I could not help but notice when looking at the mock-ups of the car, I won't say I found it in the regulations because, frankly, I have a hard time imagining all those XYZ planes attached to various parts of the car. But in looking at the model, one thing was very clear to me. What has happened to the Y250 neutral zone? Well, that was one of the sort of fundamental things that the regulations have sought to kind of get rid of in lots of respects. Um, 
the overall aim of the regulations were to make the car less sensitive when running in the wake of another car and to reduce the wake of the car at the same time. And that's all about managing, mainly about managing tyre wake and then wake from all these little aero add-ons that we, we, me and Matt spend so much time talking about. Um, unfortunately, they don't help the racing at all. So simplifying the car and making different efforts and different systems to look after the tyre wake um, has really led to a complete change in the front wing. So the Y250 is gone. Now what you see is the four front wing elements go all the way into the side of the nose and they have to by regulation. And uh, it means that it's going to be very difficult to create that uh, vortex or an airflow structure in that inboard area of the front tire uh, in the way that we have been doing before. But there are other systems like, you know, we'll talk about later, like what's happening around the front wheels with bodywork, which is really going to kind of change all of that. So, um, yeah, it's gone. Um, I, I probably would say good riddance. Um, and uh, I don't think it was ever something that was designed to be there. It just was one of these kind of things that teams found it was there and made a use out of it back in 2009 um, from speaking to sort of Paddy Lowe in subsequent years. Um, so, yeah, so that's gone. But the front wing you know, is much cleaner. Um, it's still a very large, a very powerful front wing. And um, while me and Matt may not have so many little widgets to talk about on it in the uh, in the coming years, I mean, overall, I think it's, it's a far better looking and, uh, you know, for aerodynamically speaking, a much better solution. Well, Summers, you love to talk about the aero handshake. We've had these regulations and this uh, neutral zone for a while. How big of a change will this be for the teams in designing for next season? I mean, fundamentally, is this not going to disrupt how they've been running the arrow on their car for the last, what, eight years? Yeah, but fundamentally, the, the car is changing anyway in the way that the aerodynamics of the car are set out. So changing the front wing is just one of those areas that the, the teams will have to rethink. Um, and as Craig mentions, obviously, there will be, there, are, there is still scope uh, for the teams to make uh, changes to their car. I think one of the big uh, things that I've noticed from uh, looking around social media is that when people have seen the car that was presented by um, uh, Formula One is that people think that every car is going to look identical to that particular car. And that is far from the truth. Obviously, there's still plenty of scope for them to be able to make adjustments and find their own design philosophies within that. Um, so that's something that I think is key to to put out there is that you know, each of these cars will still have their their own fingerprints uh, all over them. Okay, one of the things that I really loved, I think it was with the 2017 changes, we sort of suddenly saw this concept of the loaded versus the unloaded wing and the subsequent dance by the teams to find the point of optimum performance. But it still seems that teams have a different lean. Some of them like a more loaded wing, some of them like a more unloaded wing. Is that something that will be able to continue with these new regulations? I think it's one of these things that's going to be quite interesting. Um, again, there's reasons that you had the inboard and the outboard loaded wings um, uh, because of the, the old aerodynamic um, philosophies of the car. Now that's changed. Um, you certainly still want to get outwashed towards the uh, outside of the wing, like the outboard end of the wing, um, which would suggest that you would want to maybe load it more inboard keep the end plate doing the, the most work but with all of these geometries that the teams are now fixed within there may be limits to what teams can do equally the other job of the front wing although the, if you've seen on the uh, f1 uh, prototype car that was uh, unveiled the front wing seemed to be much higher 
um, in the middle section now. No longer is it attached by these drop plates. Instead, it's actually going straight into the side of the nose, which is pretty much where it used to be um, in previous years. But now you've got the, this massive underfloor area that needs to be fed with lots of air, and you don't want the front wing taking that airflow away. So you may find that teams will have, certainly in that span between the nose and maybe halfway across the front wing, a very flat, I mean, ideally, they'd probably actually want a slightly downward um, uh, profile there. I don't think the rules are going to allow you to do that easily. You can play them out, maybe, but you're really going to want to be maximizing what's happening under the floor with the front wing. Um, and then everything else is just trying to create downforce where you can. So I think it's going to be good, rather than inboard, outboard loaded, it's going to be maybe more mid, mid loaded um, somewhere in front of the tyre um, just to get the outwash effect and look after that underfloor. So this is the second time you've mentioned this is like some of the older wings uh, before we move on to the cape and the other underfloor stuff that currently exists now. Um, how much do you think teams will be looking back to the pre-era of the current regulations to um, to find inspiration and solutions for what they're having to design for in the 22 regulations? Well, I think everybody can use their previous experience to some, to some extent. But obviously, we're talking about a vast difference in the way that these cars perhaps have to be looked at. Um, so I think that we'll draw on uh, their experience in the past, obviously, because that's just how, how Formula One has always been based. But I do think that there will be some some new thinking as well in, in some respects as well. All right. Well, one of the big areas of development that we've seen under the current regulations has been sort of what I like to call sort of the underfloor furniture at the front of the car, the cape, um, all this stuff like that. Can they even have anything like that under these regulations? And if they could, do you anticipate them needing to use it for the rest of what the car is going to look like? I think it's, it's I'm a little bit split on this. Um, the regulations have changed with the nose. So some aspects of the nose design have changed. So we saw a very fat nose on the prototype car. That isn't necessarily what the teams will want to do. You can still have a nose as narrow as Mercedes and other teams have been running this year. Um, but the way that the regulations for the rest of the shape of the nose going back towards the AA bulkhead, um, now you've got lots of minimum radius um, uh, um, regulations, which stops you creating kind of sharp pieces of bodywork, much like the cape. So there could be some scope to do, still do something should you wanted to. But again, when we're looking at feeding that, you know, the inlet for the underfloor, um, I don't know if these will work quite as strongly as they did by powering the barge boards and the you know, that sort of um, outer forward section of the floor, which has been so important over the past few years in aero development. So I, I think we'll see a lot less of that. Certainly what we'll see will be a lot less overt. Um, you won't be having such big, sharp um, edges, lots of turning veins and sticky up bits. All of that will be kind of cleaned off by the regulations. Yeah, and I also think on top of that, you've got to remember that without the Y2 Y250 Vortex as well, a lot of these... Um, areas of the the design obviously are, are intended to help manipulate that flow in some respect so without the y250 and having to enhance other areas of the front wing to to do what craig's already mentioned you know you, you then have to adapt so as craig says i think there's just going to be a meeting point uh, some teams might still look down that road because it suits their particular philosophy or how they've approached the regulations. But I do think there'll be a much more cleaner approach in the beginning, at least. 
All right. So I have to ask this question for the benefit of everyone. There's no possibility we're going to get like another caterum type nose season out of these regulations. Is there? No. Uh, having said that, though, the you know the, the kind of the much hated kind of thumb nose um, that we've seen on still on several cars, it, the, the regulations are still there to allow that to be formed. So some teams could still do that. I don't see the benefit in doing it now. I think the, the I think what will look nice on the noses in the next few years will be how they've merged the nose into the front wing. So whether you have it like a kind of a 1980s car where you very much have a, a nose tip with wings coming into it. Or if it's much more kind of blended so that the nose is just merging out almost like the old Jordan 191 into the front wing section. So um, I think we can get some quite attractive designs. And as, as Matt was saying earlier, these cars will all look slightly different. And I think that could be one of the fingerprints that some teams will have in how they shape that end of the nose. So earlier you mentioned a lot of turning veins and other stuff like that. Um, so, for example, elephant ears. I know we talked about those. Are those done for permanently uh, yeah i mean i can't think think of how you can um, merge those into the current regulations okay the other thing that i kind of wanted to ask about because it happens um all the time i think every car runs one now is an s duct is 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 that going to be a continuing feature and is there a way the teams might leverage that to help feed the underfloor structures that they're going to want to I kind of think the the thing with the the S duct and the way in which that the new rules and and regulations control the way that the airflow moves within that region, it might become uh, slightly redundant in many ways because of what they that they're actually using it for. Um, but you know, it depends. You know, they might use it for other purposes. But I just think that as it stands with the new rules, I can't. I, I'm struggling to see how it might become advantageous. But Craig might have an, another opinion on that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're right. There, there, some of the reasons that you did it to affect the underside of the nose um, has gone because you don't have turning veins in that area anymore. But the noses will be longer, um, so you are going to get an increase in the boundary layer, which is what the S-duct is all about. Um, but equally, again, you keep talking about you want to be feeding the, um, the, the inlet to the underfloor, and an S-duct could just help tidy things up a little bit. But um, yeah, I don't think it's uh, the be all and end all of the aero design, and I think McLaren still still don't run one, do they? All right. Well, that's yet another place where I was completely wrong. Um, where I'm used to thinking about these regulations in terms of legality boxes, where the designers are allowed to play and exercise their maximum creativity. Do we have anything like that in these current regulations? And if we do, where should people be looking for the fun, interesting bits to most likely turn up? I think the, the, the two areas that I, I, I've noticed, I mean, you've got the nose, which I don't think is that influential in the overall aero. I think teams playing with the, the, the bodywork around the wheels would be really important. Um, but equally, the side pods, um, and that's changed a little bit this year because they've added a really large um, opening area that they're allowed to use at the back of the thing. We could see some absolutely microscopic um, side pods next year um, because of the way the cooling works. Um, and almost, in some respects, almost getting rid of the Coke bottle and having them venting a bit like the, the sort of the mid 2000s Renaults with all those louvers um, midway along the side pod. Um, I think there's some, some great opportunities there. 
Yeah, one of the renders actually shows those kind of louvered panels on, on, on the side pods. And as you say, Craig, that's very interesting in terms of how small we might see the side pods actually get uh, and, and obviously how that influences the, the rest of the aerodynamic profile of the car. But as you say, I think the front wheel weight deflectors, that's something that we haven't seen before. So obviously be of interest and to see what the teams are obviously looking to do there. And then also the rear brake duct fins and how they interact with the, the rear section of the car. Uh, might be quite interesting as well depending on what scope that the, the designers tend to work with there well i'm glad you brought up the wheel wake deflectors because i am very curious about them first of all it seems like to me they've stolen them from somewhere but i cannot actually find any place where they have been stolen from so so what's up that where did this idea originate where does it come from I mean, this is um, sort, of, sort of 101 aerodynamics. Uh, when you're talking about air flowing over a cylinder, you see that the air separates and breaks up behind it, which is exactly what happens in an even more complicated way with um, a spinning front wheel stuck to the tarmac. So that wake that the front tyre creates is the, the biggest part of the problem going back down the um, uh, car and create the wake for the car following that. So what they've wanted to do is to try and delay that separation of the airflow behind the front tire and the best way to do that is just to put a piece of bodywork there which increases the pressure keeps the airflow attached and just stops that wake being just so big and messy so to me this looks like they've just put a little tiny extra front wing over the front tire yeah so <laughs> you're saying it's already going to have a big impact just in terms of uh, managing the turbulence and the wake from the tire but yeah. what else can this be can this be used for other thing are we going to see like little little bits on top of it like we see with the halo and and will this affect is this like essentially extra downforce i can help use to move the center of pressure of the car around if i want depending upon how the angle of attack and how it's set and the height above the wheel I, I think you're getting into the minutiae of things, Matt. But in, in reality, yes, there's lots of things that can be done with the wheel weight deflectors. I think there's the, the, there's a, obviously going to be a scope to what can actually be done. But we've already seen um, efforts with slots in, for argument's sake, how much um, the teams decide to use these to be able to manipulate airflow um, will come down to how much scope is in the regulations for that. Um, but I do think it's going to be a very interesting, um, at least opening phase as we start to see teams try different things and where they end up with it. Just a bit like um, the the unloaded and loaded wings we, you, you've already mentioned, you know, they always tend to sort of gravitate towards one solution after a while. You know, they'll all come up with a, a, a you know, a solution at one end of the spectrum and somebody with something a little bit more aggressive. And then we end up with, in reality with something more or less in the middle. I think the other interesting thing, as much as we've noticed that fin above the, uh, the, the, the wheel, that then bends down and goes all down the inside face of the front tyre and gives you quite a big um, bit of bodywork to play about with. And I don't know if you go again, we keep talking about Jordan 191 because I think everyone has that car maybe visually in their heads. It used to have these front wing end plates that curved inside the front wheels. And that lower part of that front brake duct now is doing very much the same thing. It's grabbing that tire squirt coming off the lower inner part of the front tire. And it's going to be managing that and pushing that back around um, the car. And then obviously the vertical thing can also be creating outwash at the same time. So the, you know, these are going to be really powerful pieces of aero kit. And we're going to see them changing 
you know, race by race, um, not least because it's also functioning as a brake duct somewhere in the middle of it as well. Right. So I realize we're not done with the entire car just yet, um, but that is probably enough tech for today. So I hope you can make it back next week to finish what we have started. Summers, where can we find you on social media? Uh, on Twitter is the best place. It's uh, Summers F1. And Scarves, where should people look for your work or look for you? Uh, well, the best place, again, is Twitter or, or Instagram, at Scarves Tech, um, and F1 TV as well. Well, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge with us, and I look forward to finishing this segment. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that. Part two of each of those segments, the tech and the driver stuff, will be coming up next Sunday, which I believe is the 22nd. So that will also be a pre-recorded segment, um, a pre-recorded show, and then we'll come back with the live stream for the Belgian Grand Prix the week after. And I will have just stepped out of the car in full beachy holiday mode so i should be at my professional scatty best for the belgian grand prix but i hope you will catch us live that's at 8 p.m uk time the sunday after the race we might be wrong but, but we're first and sometimes we're wrong about being first but this pre-record now and the pre-record that you'll get next week mean that i am actually having a proper bit of time off so me and the spanners and my little wrenches will be cruising to the glamorous location of, checks notes, the Isle of Wight. The Isle of Wight, which is never, it's never just cloudy and miserable and windy all week, is it? I'm sure guaranteed sunshine. That's what my wife told me. But we're going to go play some golf or catch up with Summers for 18 holes as well and uh, hopefully come back relaxed and refreshed because I'll be honest with you, I don't think in the pandemic I have had a proper chunk of time off. Because the Missed Apex dream was so fragile, you could only whisper it. And I also assumed if I took any time off the radio, I would I would be replaced instantly by someone with talent who is cheaper and faster or in better. <laughs> but uh, it hasn't happened so far. But I tell you what, I was so scared, I didn't ask for a show off for nearly a year. So I, I legitimately didn't have a weekend without a show for a year it's probably not the healthiest way to go so i'm glad that i'm getting a proper chunk of time off and starting to my say to myself that uh, well maybe this is what i do maybe i do say things out loud and do freelance content creation and maybe that's not going to disappear the second i put my feet up on a beach so <laughs> so anyway whatever i'm out of here uh, i'm you can see i'm in holiday mode already i'll confess this is being recorded a good few days after my holiday started, so I, I had to go and dish out a, a Missed Apex t-shirt just to do this. I hope you will follow all the crew. Scarbs, is that Scarbs Racing? I think all the links will be in the show notes below, but go and follow Summers and Matt and Brad and Alex and Kyle and me. I'm the best one at Spanners Ready. All the links below. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. Until we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.